The episode you're about to hear was initially released as a Patreon exclusive. These episodes are typically shorter than the ones you're used to hearing, but we think they're still interesting, and we hope you'll agree. Hello and welcome to Something's Not Right. I'm Olivia. And I'm Tashana. We're recording on some new equipment tonight and we're still kind of working out the kinks. So if the audio is not perfect, please be patient with us. Uh, But you guys are the patrons and so I think you know to be patient with us anyway. You're the nice people. You like us. (laughs) I hope. Uh, I know we've been quiet. For a while, because I've had to take all this time out to get Flat Rock out into the world, and I really appreciate everybody's patience. When we get to the end of tonight's story, I'll update you on where we are as far as resuming our regular release schedule, or where I think we are on that. Spoiler alert, I don't really know. I've got some (laughs) ideas. Uh, So we'll just figure it out while we're recording. I don't know. Should I get to the story? Sure. All right. With August marking the anniversary of Elvis Presley's death in 1977, we're going to take a look at one of the most bizarre encounters in not only his life, but perhaps in American history. But first, a trivia question. Of all the important documents and photographs held by the National Archives, which is the most requested for reproduction? Is, are you asking me this trivia question? Sure. Or the, the audience? But you, but you know the answer. I do know the answer. <laughs> uh, so it's not the Declaration of Independence. Uh, it's not the Bill of Rights or the Constitution. The archives receives more requests for copies of a picture of Elvis Presley shaking hands with a smiling President Richard Nixon on December 21st, 1970 than any of the millions of historical items it holds. For a massive entertainment figure to glad hand with the president may not seem unusual in this day and age, but in 1970, the office of the president was still regarded by its occupant as a serious and dignified position. Now, I want to ask you something real quick, because I don't know if we've ever talked about this. Are you an Elvis person? I mean, I I like Elvis. So, so more like a casual Elvis I'm person. I'm a casual Elvis person. Okay. So my grandma is super into him. So I think by default, I probably am more of a fan, but I'm not fanatical about it. Does Got- that make sense? Gotcha. So obviously Nixon himself played a massive role in eroding that aura of the, you know, presidency being a dignified position. I mean, like, not to the extent it's being done now, but whatever. But for all his faults, which were legion, he was a serious man who recognized the seriousness of his job. Suppose with Elvis, who wore, to his credit, a fairly understated suit compared to some of his other get-ups, mm-hmm. although it was purple velvet. 
uh, it didn't exactly jibe with the law and order square image that Nixon cultivated for himself. Elvis, for the record, still being Elvis, wore a massive belt buckle and uh, the relative restraint of the rest of his outfit notwithstanding. So how did this unlikely photo come to be? First, Elvis was obsessed with cops. He said in interviews that he grew up wanting to be a police officer. When he toured, he collected badges from local law enforcement. And we'll include links to our sources for this. And in that, there's one, like, Australian fan site. And that particular article has got a lot of information on his relationship with the police. And it's got pictures of a bunch of those badges. So that's sort of interesting. Now, Elvis had a few relatively minor run-ins with the law, but he still held police in high regard. When cruising around Memphis, Elvis would pull over and talk to police officers on patrol, sometimes for hours. I guess he was like one of those goobers who, you know, you get stuck in a conversation with. I just wonder what they talked about. Who knows? He was known to stop by police stations on holidays to visit with police who had to work. And there's this well-known story from one of his jaunts around Memphis during which he came on a traffic accident and Elvis pulled over and helped the police direct traffic, which helped things move (laughs) along until motorists realized who it was giving a hand to the police, leading to an even bigger traffic jam than the one the accident caused in the first place. So, I mean, can you imagine, you know, like being out running errands and there's Elvis directing traffic? Well, and it would definitely depend on what he was wearing. Sure. If he had that, like... um And what period of Elvis this was. Yeah. I'm, for, I'm picturing, like, tacky big glasses Elvis. I mean, that's him later in life. Yeah. Who knows? I don't... I don't know the date on that. They could have given him like a hat or something to put on so he wasn't so conspicuous. About a week before Christmas 1970, Elvis had an argument with his wife, Priscilla, and his father, Vernon, about how much he'd spent on presents. Apparently more than $100,000 for 32 pistols and 10 Mercedes. So you want to be on his Christmas list for sure. But it's, who were they for? No fucking clue. Friends, I guess. <laughs> Girlfriends. Elvis stormed out of Graceland and went to the airport, catching the first flight out, which happened to be headed to Washington, D.C. He booked a block of rooms, but got bored and then decided he'd spend some time at his mansion in L.A. So <laughs> he goes out there, but... Early on the morning of December 21st, around 3 a.m., he decided he wanted to go back to Washington. Must be nice. Um, But I feel like there's probably some other unmentioned stuff going on there to cause him to make these erratic travel decisions. Oh, he was super heavy at that point into... That's what makes this funny. This funny. This story so hilarious. Right. (laughs) He was flying back across the country, and 
during that flight, he apparently had an idea and asked the flight attendant for a pen and some paper. And on the American Airlines stationery, he wrote in part. And let me just say before I start reading this, I mean, I think it should go without saying here. I'm directly quoting this letter by Elvis. I just want to make sure and cite my sources. Okay, so (laughs) it went like this. Dear Mr. President, I'm sorry, I can't do an Elvis voice. Wish I could. First, I would like to introduce myself. I am Elvis Presley, and I admire you and have great respect for your office. I talked to Vice President Agnew in Palm Springs three weeks ago and expressed my concern for our country. The drug culture, the hippie elements, the SDS, Black Panthers, etc. do not consider me as their enemy or, as they call it, the establishment. I call it America and I love it. (laughs) Sir, I can and will be of any service that I can to help the country out. I have no concern or motives other than helping the country out. So I wish not to be given a title or an appointed position. I can and will do more good if I were made a federal agent at large. And I will (laughs) help out by doing it my way through communications with people of all ages. First and foremost, I am an entertainer, but all I need is the federal credentials. I will be here for as long as it takes to get the credentials of a federal agent. I have done an in-depth study of drug abuse and communist brainwashing techniques, and I am right in the middle of the whole thing, where I can and will do the most good. Tashana is dying over here. Because it's hilarious. Because who couldn't read that and automatically think, this person is high as Cooter Brown. Right? Like, out stone to the motherfucking bone. I would love to meet you just to say hello if you're not too busy. Respectfully, Elvis Presley. Okay. With the help of Senator George Murphy, an actor turned Republican senator from California, also on the plane, Elvis hand-delivered this letter to the White House and waited at his hotel. The note made its way to aid, I'm sorry, I hope I'm not mispronouncing this, Edgel Bud Crow, K-R-O-G-H, later to be imprisoned for his role in Watergate as one of the so-called plumbers. Crow was a huge Elvis fan and convinced the president and his chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, also later imprisoned, that the king was on to something and set up the meeting for noon that day. Elvis, his bodyguard, and his aide arrived on time with Presley carrying a Colt revolver he intended to give the president as a gift. Good decision making. The Secret Service took the gun, but Crow escorted Presley back to the Oval Office. In a book he wrote about the meeting, Crow said Elvis was awestruck, but quickly settled down and had a relatively lengthy chat with the president. This was before Nixon installed his infamous recording system in the office, so the only record beyond the photo is the notes Crow took. And we've got links to a bunch of this stuff. So you can check that out. 
Crow wrote that Presley blamed the Beatles as a, quote, real force for anti-American spirit. The president said that drug users were also, quote, in the vanguard of anti-American protest. Well, and it's interesting they bring up the Beatles because you know about all that stuff with John Lennon, which would be an, a good Patreon episode, too. Something between John Lennon and Elvis? No, about how they were, like, tapping his phone and stuff oh. when he was here. You didn't know about all that? No. It's really interesting stuff. Huh. So that may be a thing I can research for another similar thing. So it's just funny that that's the, who they cite is the Beatles. Right. You know what I mean? That's the enemy. Uh-huh. Presley indicated to the president in a very emotional manner that he was on his side. Crow wrote that he wanted to restore respect for the flag and wanted to repay what his country had provided him. Quote, he also mentioned that he is studying communist brainwashing and the drug culture for over 10 years, Crow wrote. He mentioned that he knew a lot about this and was accepted by the hippies. He said he could go right into a group of young people or hippies and be accepted, which he felt could be helpful to him in his drug drive. The president <laughs> indicated again his concern that Presley retain his credibility, end quote. And then Elvis gave the president a side hug. It's funny that Richard Nixon, of all people, had more awareness about and concern for Elvis's image as a rock icon than did Elvis himself. But here we are. Well, is there a part of you, though, that wonders a little bit if the books were cooked, so to speak, with this version of the story? I mean, it could be. Do you know what I mean? I, we're not talking about super credible people, so... Uh, and, and also, have you ever heard those Nixon tapes? It's not totally related, but do the famous ones where he would record himself? I haven't listened to any of them. Oh, it's pretty messed up. And it goes hand in hand with one time he just been he had been drinking and like went down like out of the White House amongst like people hippies protesting interesting <laughs> really i just figured you would have known about that mm -mm. stuff okay i mean i knew about the tapes but i just have never oh there's something else those tapes but yeah i don't disagree with you the whole thing is just kind of it's weird elvis asked nixon for a badge from the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. And this is like the predecessor to the DEA. It was the only one he didn't have. It's like Pokemon. He was trying to <laughs> collect them all. So Crow got one for him. When news of the meeting became public a year later, as the White House promised Elvis the meeting would be secret, Nixon aides emphasized that it was an honorary badge. Though, according to Priscilla in her autobiography, Elvis thought it was genuine mm -hmm. and wanted the badge because he believed it would allow him to carry his guns and pills anywhere he wanted, including <laughs> overseas. <laughs> yeah. Elvis biographers say, despite his well-documented drug addiction, which ultimately killed him. Uh -huh. I, I think we all know that. El Spoiler alert. 
Presley wouldn't see the irony in his being an agent of the Narcotics Bureau as he always saw illegal drugs and prescription drugs as completely different. And this is where I put a note for myself here. Like old people. I mean, you would not believe or maybe you would believe. I don't know who the old people are in your life, but like (laughs) my grandmother, the one who's gone now. She would, you know, she had a legitimate prescription for pain medication, but we're talking about narcotics and she would drive Mm -hmm. and got into some accidents on it. Like she just it didn't compute with her that you're not supposed to be doing this, that this isn't safe. Yeah, maybe you need it. And yeah, maybe you were prescribed it, but they're still fucking drugs. Oh, 100 percent. This isn't someone that I'm related to, but it reminds me of I used to clean houses with my mom when I was a teenager and there was an older woman whose house we would clean and she lived in a nice house. And I remember I'm not above admitting this. I was, I didn't go through like people's drawers and stuff, but yeah, I'm not going to lie. If I was in their bathroom, I would get curious and just open up their medicine cabinet to see what was in there. Mm -hmm. This woman had a pharmacy. We're talking all kinds of narcotics, sleeping pills, Valiums, Somas, Xanaxes. I mean, just lined up. Well, and another thing is that, you know, it could be a legitimate prescription and something that a person needs, but, you know, you can still end up addicted to it. And people don't even realize they have an addiction. It's just like it does not compute for them that in in terms of addiction – This is a drug just like heroin is a drug, like cocaine is a drug. You know, addiction is addiction. Well, and I think it speaks to it. it, I think it's more difficult when. When you're dealing in terms of. You are taking it for a legitimate reason so that you can feel normal. So you don't feel some sort of thing, whether it's chronic pain or any of that. And your body becomes addicted to it. Yeah. You know, I know a few years ago when I had the those issues with my back, before I had that little minor surgery I had, I had, they were prescribing me Lortab, like that was the strongest thing they would give me. Mm-hmm. But there were days where I was taking like 10 in 12 i have noticed and having been prescribed that because i mean that's pretty much the standard one you know that if you've got a pain situation or if you've just had a surgery that's that's usually the sort of the standard one they give you that my tolerance for it goes up very quickly it does and i was dealing with some serious pain right and i got to a point where i finally said because they made me go through two months of like physical therapy before they would let me have this surgery because insurance companies are terrible uh sorry to any one that potentially is listening that i doubt isn't in alignment maybe with that thought process but i know that i eventually said hey can you give me something stronger or something else because i'm having to take like 12 of these and they just kind of looked at me and they're like why are you taking that many? I said, because I'm in fucking pain and I don't take them to get high. I'm taking them so I can get through my day. 
It seems like, I don't know, maybe legalizing something else to treat pain that would be a little bit safer might be in everyone's best interest, but what do I know? Well, that or how about you let me have this very minor, minimally invasive surgery right now that my, do that my doctor has said I'm a perfect candidate for that as soon as they performed it, it was instant relief mm -hmm. and I stopped taking the pills which FYI I was taking that many for like a month and a half and just stopped taking them cold turkey and went through like minor withdrawals I can't imagine what it's like for someone who's been taking them for years yeah that's I mean it's got to be terrifying and awful yeah so it 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 doesn't surprise me that Elvis thought that way. Plus, he's just surrounded by yes men and people who cater to all his needs. Yep, yep. You know? a lot. So. Presley's aide said, despite the seeming incongruity of the staid Nixon and iconic Presley, the two actually seemed to enjoy each other's company. This is a quote from Crow. No, sorry. From Presley's aide. It says... They identified with being lonely at the top, and they hit it off against all odds. And I, I can see that. I can, too. I mean, you're in a very unusual position, and you're not going to encounter a lot of other people who understand that. Sure. The existence of the photograph wasn't widely known until 1988, when a Chicago newspaper mentioned its availability in the National Archives. Within a week... The archives had received 8,000 requests for the picture, <laughs> and interest in it remains unabated, obviously, because we're doing this episode on it. I know someone who will remain anonymous that owns a rolling tray. With that picture? Mm -hmm. That's kind of amazing. I love it. Yeah. Before we go, um, obviously, I guess I, I should say that was me. The end there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I just real quick wanted to bring up that they actually did a few years ago. I think it was, I'm checking my facts here, but yeah, it's 2016. There was actually a movie about it. Um, and I, at one time you could watch it on Prime, if you're a Prime person. Um, now, I will say that rightfully so sort of disgraced actor kevin spacey plays richard nixon so in a way that seems a little bit it does and know that like you know enter in with your discretion sort of thing you know i get it if you don't want to watch things anymore that he's in but i will say that it's pretty entertaining and that one of my favorite actors, Michael Shannon, plays Elvis Presley, which is really funny just because he looks nothing like him. Um, but it still works somehow. And uh, Carrie Elways is in it. Johnny Knoxville. Colin Hanks. Uh, Tracy Letts. There's like a lot of really good people in the movie. But it's specifically about when they met. And it kind of is... The story you just told. Uh, it's got to be pretty funny. It's an entertaining watch. And I, I did make me laugh, though, because I'm like, neither one of the people cast in these roles look anything like the people they were cast right. to play. 
Which maybe helps. Like, it probably would have been weirder if you'd had one of them that looked identical and then the other person did it. So. But if that's the thing that interests you, it's a pretty good little flick. And I, it may still be on Prime. And you, if you have that, you can watch it for free. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. So, that was a... Where's the badge now? Uh, Is it at Graceland? Probably. Probably that that Australian site probably t- tells where that one is, um, but I would imagine it, it's probably on display there. I don't remember that from having toured, but it's been a while. I don't think I've been since maybe two thousand eight, two thousand seven. No, two thousand eight. I think I went like maybe Christmas two thousand eight. I yeah. Um. So before we go, I've got a bunch of housekeeping. And don't skip this stuff because it concerns you guys. Uh Yeah, you're in trouble. No, not actually. (laughs) You've got homework to do. (laughs) You do have homework to do. I am still hoping to get us back on a regular schedule sometime in September, but it all depends on the production for Flat Rock. I can tell you for certain, though, that the final episode of Flat Rock will premiere on October 1st. So there's an end in sight. Um... I know it's frustrating, but I have a day job, plus each podcast is practically a full-time job, and I can't research, write, and edit episodes along with everything else on my plate right now and still find time to sleep. I had JR writing some episodes for me, and I was hoping he could write some in this time to get me ahead so we could get back going in September, but he hasn't had time to do that because he's got um, like a pretty exciting project ahead of his own so, I don't know. I'm just asking for a little more patience, please. But, you know, a lot of the shows that you guys listen to that are very awesome are making enough money so they can hire help. And, um, you know, or in the case of some other shows, they just plagiarize their scripts. <laughs> but uh, we're not there. I mean, we're obviously not there at the plagiarism thing but we're not there as far as being able to hire help maybe someday if you tell your friends to listen to us so that brings me to some things that i need from you guys first of all are you listening to flat rock um you better be i put my heart and soul into it so if you don't i'm gonna cry also tashana is in it in several episodes and she does some awesome voice acting for me thank you very much and at first i thought you were asking me and i said yes i'll listen to it of course um yeah you've gotten some some big compliments on your work so murphy's law has been in full effect with this episode obviously the audio is a mess that new equipment that i mentioned is being returned at this point but the really awesome thing that happened and I didn't know about this until I was editing it, is that somehow the episode cut off before we were quite finished. So I'm having to come back in and re-record this part on my own. Anyway, where were we? I think I was saying something about Flat Rock. And the whole point there was that I wanted to ask you guys if you enjoy Flat Rock or this show. Please tell a friend to listen to it. Word of mouth is a super big deal for independent podcasts, and that really helps us out. I also mentioned that October 1st episode of Flat Rock, the last one. That's going to be a Q&A episode. 
And so I really need you guys to submit any questions that you have. They can be about anything related to the case, my process in researching or putting the show together, or even questions about Nashville landmarks, past and present, that were featured in the story. And you can send those questions to me through flatrockpod.com or notrightpodcast.net. Either way, I'm going to get them. Speaking of Q&As, if I can't get us back into regular production in September, I want to do a Facebook Live video Q&A for Something's Not Right. So be thinking about questions that you have for us, or if you'd like, you can even go ahead and send them in through our website. Personally, I actually kind of like that because I am not good at answering things on the spot. And so that kind of gives me a little bit of a heads up to think about how I want to answer those questions. So I'm not done asking you to send things to us. I want to remind you that Halloween is going to be here before you know it. And I don't have a deadline yet. But if you've got a paranormal experience that you want us to read on the show, please send that one in via our website as well. If you want to be anonymous, that's fine. You might want to make a note of that in the email. But send that stuff to us. Uh, So that's it. Be sure and stay tuned at the end of the episode to hear a preview of Flat Rock. Thank you, as always, to Justin from Mysterious Circumstances, Audrey Arndt, Jessica Ashley, Hope Brazel, Patton Fuquay, Allison Klima, Kathy Lind, Janet Logan, and Terry Quillen. One time a detective says she never had a chance. What did he mean by that? What do they know that the public don't know? In 1969, Kathy Jones was brutally murdered on her way to a Nashville skating rink. The public wasn't told about one of the strongest suspects in her case, and I want to know more. Join me for Flat Rock, a cold case podcast where I'll be taking a deep dive into Kathy's murder and bringing you with me. Someone out here is still alive today. Someone knows something.